So if I were to ask you right now to tell me how one could achieve the good life, what would you say? What advice or instruction would you give to me in this moment, the man who's just like, how how do we get the most satisfaction out of life? The very famous uh, philosopher Aristotle would say, the activity of our intelligence constitutes the complete happiness of man. In other words, man's chief end, according to Aristotle, is intellect. That's the golden brick road for him for a good life. Others would say the best life only comes by way of you being your own hero. You be your own hero. Other megachurch pastors would tell us that our best life now is through enlarging our vision. We need to enlarge our vision and remember that goodness and happiness is merely a choice. That is it. But how about you? What metrics and what matrix and what methods leads to a good, satisfactory, fulfilling life? See, for some of those who've decided to come out tonight for the very first time, perhaps, this is exactly why you're here. This is exactly why you're here tonight. Let's get down to the brass tacks you're thinking. This is what I'm talking about. No fluff, no churchy, Christian, Jesus-y stuff. This is what we want to hear. Will this God get me to a good life? Wanting everything just to be, I was thinking, fixed or, or mended or sewn up or to stop leaking. Well, my friends, you'll be happy to know that the Bible tells us how to get the good life. The Bible informs us how to get the good life. It's probably just not what we expected. It's probably just not what we expect at all. See, in the Old Testament of the Bible, there's this preacher. That's what he called himself. He's this preacher. And he's wise, and he's brilliant, and he's experienced, and he just, he just knows. And upon reviewing all of like life's offerings... Reviewing all of life's offerings, and after chasing every gust of wind, he discovered that all of it, all of it, was vanity. Except one thing. His final verdict for the good life is fear. That's, what he, that's his conclusion. His final verdict for the good life is fear. Let me read you his own words. This is what he says. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. You see, this preacher, this author of Ecclesiastes, breathed in, tasted, eaten, swallowed, digested everything. Everything. Power. Pleasure, sex, top floor offices, the perfect companion. He had the reputation and all the glamour. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone and Glamour magazine. All of it. He had the bank account with enough zeros that our minds would just pop. And amazingly enough, his final verdict, again, comes down to fear. Comes down to the fear of God, fear God and keep his commandments. It's that simple and that challenging. Fear, fear, fear. Now, let's just cool our jets for a moment. 
Let's just cool jets for a moment. The arresting emotion of fear is something we are all very used to, right? Whether sitting in the cinema or sitting in the hospital waiting room, fear is something that we all share collectively. It's something we all share in common. Believer or unbeliever, man or woman, nine or age 90, we are not ignorant to fear. And especially, I was thinking, especially for us in Los Angeles, right? Like LA runs on diesel fear. That's what we run on. We are fear of failure, fear of commitment, fear of rejection, fear of confrontation, simply fears of being outdone, outshone, and out of control. I remember reading this article a while back in Psychology Today where it states that all of our fears, all of our fears and phobias, and phobia is just a, you know, the Greek word for fear, states about how all of them, no matter how irrational or how legit or how immature, are in some sense survival-based. All of our fears are survival-based. And I would even go as far to say that there are probably people here tonight who's possibly only driving force in life in survival is fear. That is why you do what you do. Possibly that is the motive motive of why you work so hard, avoid others, embrace others, or even want a part of religion or something spiritual or why you're here tonight. One of my favorite authors, uh, Stephen King, in a foreword of his, on one of his books, he says... Fear is the emotion that makes us blind. How many things are we afraid of? We're afraid to turn off the lights when our hands are wet. We're afraid to stick a knife into the toaster to get the stuck English muffin without unplugging it first. We're afraid of what the doctor may tell us when the physical exam is over or even when the airplane suddenly takes a great unearthly lurch in midair. So let's get this straight for a moment. Is this what the preacher was talking about? Everything else stinks, but this type of fear somehow is the path of the good life. How in the world is this the silver bullet of life, right? What is, that, what is exactly going on? Because I tell you, none of this sounds life-giving or good life-ish or churchy or Christian-y. Well, what I'd like to do tonight is sort of expose and pull the drape from the down from off this idea of godly fear. I want to talk tonight about a higher level of fear. I want to talk tonight about healthy fear. A healthier, higher level of fear than what Stephen King was talking about. I want to allow tonight's verses to not only show us and pay attention how true, proper fear of God, true, proper fear of God is the path to a good life, but it it itself is also the good life. Fearing God is not only the path of good life, but it itself is the good life. So let's read, and as we walk through this, let's allow our answers to progress rather than me just tipping all my cards up front and all of us just go home. And to be honest, I believe that the fear of God is far easier described than defined, especially with tonight's verses. So as we talk about fear, this is far from exhaustive. Um, I mean, but hopefully it's helpful. So tonight's, if you guys notice, tonight's verses are just lit up with fear. Lit with fear. I mean, there's fear of man and fear of God everywhere. We see this most easily as Luke, the author of Acts, speaks about the early church community as they were what? Walking in the fear of the Lord. 
He's describing these great characteristics of this early church. And it says they were walking in the fear of the Lord. The church was walking in the good life. So now, this is the second time the church in Acts has been called fearful. This is the second time. Anybody remember the first? The other time was with Ananias and Sapphira. They decided to lie to the Holy Spirit and dead. But this time, why does it mention fear? Why does it mention fear? I see no people dropping dead. I would say it has to do with the conversion of Saul. It has to do with the conversion of Saul. His conversion, his decision to follow Christ. Now, if you remember or not, how hellish and how wicked and how wild man-animal Saul was, but he has now been saved. If you know this, Saul is, Saul is a very changed man. Saul is a very changed man. Some of you may know him as Paul or Paul the Apostle. His name will change a little later on, but as he is known now, he has gone from wolf to sheep. He is Saul from wolf to sheep. And because of that, he has a ransom on his head. People want to kill him. He has a warrant out for his blood. Look down at verse 23. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So Saul is facing persecution and suffering, just as Jesus said he would just a few verses earlier. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Now here's what's interesting. This is interesting. We've come to understand that these words, many days now, is more like three years. See, if you're familiar with Saul's early years, you may likely know that he took some time out to go chill in Arabia. Paradise Arabia, apparently. But he wanted to be in Arabia. He wanted to be there and spend those many days there, those three years, waiting and learning and prepping and growing and preaching and being equipped and so on. He then heads back to Damascus for his second phase of ministry, and then all of a sudden he hears, no, 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 no. People want you dead. People want you dead. Thus the need to get out of here. Saul, you need to escape. And I want us to see how epic his escape was. Look at this. This takes place at night. And it's not with some mighty battle. It's not with some sword fight. He's not too fast, too furious car jumping out from one skyscraper to the other. What happened? But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall by lowering him in a basket. By lowering him in a basket. This is the mighty apostle. This is the mighty apostle Saul, Paul. He is the one who's going to basically change Christianity forever. And he's ushered out under the cover of darkness in an Easter egg basket. I was just thinking, what a, what a humble beginning. This is Paul the Apostle again we're talking about here. And notice, and yet he was not trumpeted in the media. There's no hashtag for, you know, something to go viral. He was not heralded, you know, in a like, grandiose expect- expectancy. He was lowered down in rope and in wicker out of somebody's window whose house made up the city wall. It's a very, very, very humble beginning indeed, much like Jesus's was. There is nothing glamorous. There's nothing romantic about this. And hear me, this is ministry. This is ministry. 
This is what it's like to devote your life to Jesus in a lot of ways. Humbling experiences. A lot of life done in the shadows. There's no sparks. Ministry is completely unflattering and it's really, really raw. But it's absolutely glorious. I was thinking it's pretty fascinating that Saul starts Acts chapter 9 to go to Damascus with a license to capture fugitive Christians. And the story ends with him leaving Damascus as a fugitive Christian. It's outstanding. He's escaping his own death warrant from his own brothers, employers, and friends. The ones who were closest to him, the ones who worked with him, now have said, no, 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 execute him. They plotted his death, and I would say it's not because he became religious. Why are they killing him? It's not because he became religious or he was arrogant or he was mean or entitled. He already was these things. That's why they loved him. He already was those things. They want him dead because Saul is a new man with a new mission and a new master. Because his duty, his whole duty as man was to fear the true and living God and obey him. I believe the greater question for us today as residents of Los Angeles is not will we fear. It's not will we fear. It's who we will fear. Especially for us in Los Angeles. It's not will we, it's who we. Who we will fear. Will we fear man or God? See, if we fear God, greater, if the fear of God is removed from the forefront of our conscious minds, something or rather someone infinitely greater than ourselves, something awesome, terrifying, mysterious, and incomprehensible will step in. Then we will find ourselves predisposed to replace the fear of God with the fear of something. You see, what we're seeing right now is Saul was far more fearful of the Lord than what the Jewish, Jewish religious establishment could do to him. Saul was more fearful of the Lord than his own execution, than torture and pain and death. Saul was far more fearful of the disapproval of the Lord than the disapproval of man. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of you? Fear of the worldly or fear of the heavenly. I know I, I, so, uh, I struggle with this constantly. I get so caught up in my carnal flesh and insecurities and fear-produced anxieties. I mean, even today, I'm sitting at my computer fearing your, the approval of you for this talk that I'm giving rather than God's approval of God's already readied acceptance. The fear of man is just, just gross dread. Just gross dread. But the fear of God is dread and it's wonder and it's assurance. To fear God is to be overwhelmed. It's to be overwhelmed. So we are either overwhelmed with what's in front of us or who's in front of us or we are overwhelmed with who this God is in his fullest. Now I'm overwhelmed with God. Yeah, Abba Father. He loves me and gives me things. I'm overwhelmed with God in his fullest. That the same God that we call Abba Father is the exact same God who 
was in thunderous trumpeting clouds and freaked the crap of the nation of Israel at the base of the mountain who actually physically trembled. See, if we ever water God down, like our moms used to do with Kool-Aid when we were kids or whatever, we ever water God down, if we ever dilute God, we will lack in proper fear. And if we ever dilute fear, we will slack in proper obedience. Every time. Every time. To just boil the fear of God down to the bones of, and hear me, respect. I was talking to a couple people this week. Talking about the fear of God on Sunday. Tell me about it. Oh, it's, it's respect. Is it? Just like, it's just, it's just simple respect. I would say, yes, give me more. See, I just don't think that goes quite far enough. In trying to define fear and the fear of God, brilliant minds, far more than mine, have really broken it down to two categories. Two categories. There's category number one, where it's fear, but it's like fear for your life. It's like fear for your life, like the prisoner sitting in a cell waiting to be tortured. That's how it's described, and it's, it's real defining. Somebody waiting to be tortured. There's that type of fear. And then in the other category, the fear of something or someone responsible for your life. So category one, the fear for your life. Category number two, the fear of something or someone responsible for your life. This example has often been used with an illustration of a child and a father. Now, again, if I can just be honest, that illustration never worked for me. That illustration never worked. Can anybody else relate? All the fear of my father is more like in the first category, waiting for torture. I was freaked out by my father's. Thus, no delight, no pleasure, no good life, no love, no relationship. So hear me. I get where they're going, and I understand the sentiment. I truly do. But for me, it falls on an experience that just can't compare. That it merely just comes down to think of like a father. You see, I believe, and I truly believe, that for a Christian, fearing God is a sobering awareness that leads to sublime, deep pleasure in life. Author Ed Welch defines the fear of God as reverent submission that leads to obedience. For me, I, follow, I found that the closest earthly example of the fear of God, which is hard to do because none of us have ever been in the presence of God enough to just tremble or fall as dead. But I think of a person I have the most tremendous honor and respect for in my life, the person that I willingly all the time submit to, an attitude of wanting to honor them in that relationship and fearing their disapproval to the highest degree while yet knowing that through failure or success they love, they love me immensely. Few people have been like that in my life. Maybe, again, you can relate. Maybe you have somebody like that in your life, those reverent father figures, somebody you really don't want to displease. Now, I hope none of this, as we talk about the fear of God or go, even go on, brings us to a spot where we condemn ourselves, beat ourselves up, debase ourselves, flog ourselves, bring shame upon ourselves. This is to bring us to a very 
to the very, 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 very sharp point where Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is talking about God, the Lord. He's saying, fear your maker. See, why fear mice when we have God who is a monarch? Author Oswald Chambers, quote, can, fill, can help fill some, in some of this where he says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. See, I believe this is what Saul fully understood. Saul knew in the core chamber of his newly transformed heart that I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear from these people who can only kill the body. The first category of fear that we talked about is stomped out by a proper orientation of the second category of fear. And all of this just makes the early church brain like melt. They see this happening and the church spread out now across regions. It's just like, that Jesus would seize. Get this, that Jesus, they're freaking out because Jesus would seize and use and forgive somebody like Saul. Mm -mm. And this produces, them seeing this, this produces a proper, right, godly fear. Look at Psalm 130. I'm going to read it to you because get this. This is so, so nuts. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It says, if you, Lord, should write down our sins, oh, Lord, who could stand? But you are the one who forgives. So you are honored with fear. What is this telling us? That God is unmanageable. thus fear. Think about it. Isn't that a huge reason why so many either reject or give up on God, the Bible, Jesus, or the church? Perhaps somebody here in this room has given up on God, Bible, Jesus, or the church because he's unmanageable. Because we can't control God, his ways, his words, his will. If we just all admit our flesh Our tendency is we want a God we can control. I do at times, easily. I so badly want a God I can can control. Fix this whole disaster here. Fix that over there. Money here. Make me look good here. Lose weight here. I want a God I can control easily. And it's this fear of God as a biblical reality that says over and over and over and over again, that ain't possible. It's the fear of God. It's the doctrine of the fear of God that says over again, no, that isn't possible. I love it. So when God does something like redeems a dirtbag like Saul, God proves he's unmanageable. God proves he's uncontrollable. God shows again and again he is overwhelming. God shows that he is basically a hurricane or a riptide. And this is how God would define himself. And so because of the uncontrollableness of God, God is forgiving everybody. God will forgive all. Welcoming everyone. God can use anyone. God can save anybody. Love, long-suffering, patient, gentle, and kind to all. Even the darkest of souls, like Saul. 
Again, that's where good and right fear comes from. Godly fear flows from a sense of hope and mercy by way of Christ Jesus. In John Bunyan's um, Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, you like it, Isaac. I know you do. In John Bunyan's, if you guys haven't read it, it's epic. Ask Isaac. But basically, it just tells the pilgrimage of a Christian from like salvation on. And Christian, the main character in his arduous journey, finds proper fear of God valuable. Throughout this entire book, fearful, arduous, you know, cliff edges and things like that, but it finds, it finds the fear of God valuable. Bunyan, the author, makes it clear that the fear of God is valuable for the Christian life. And he says this, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul, where there is no sense of hope, of the kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ. There can be none of this fear, but rather wrath and despair, which produces a fear that is devilish. The godly fear flows from a sense of hope and mercy from God by Jesus Christ. So stay with me. We're going somewhere. I know it's freezing in here. (laughs) This fatherly type of fear that that we've been discussing is most prevalent when the heart is impressed with a lively sense of what has been done by our Heavenly Father manifested in His Son, Jesus. See, God proved to humanity how massive, how massive He was, and yet how near He can be at the cross of Jesus. See, the cross being where both categories of fear converged. And this single action took place so that God's creation, his beloved, you and I, would never be alone or abandoned or afraid ever, ever, ever again. Friends, allow me to ask you, is there anything tonight you're afraid of? What do you fear? What parts of God are you trying to control? Do you fear him over God? Do you fear her over God? See, for God to save and forgive Saul, despite everything Saul has done, despite how much Saul ferociously hated his own son, it just doesn't compute in our noodles. See, if one person deserved to get the worst punishment, it would be Saul. It would be Saul. But see, that's just the thing. We are no better or no nearer to God than Saul was. Every punishment Saul deserved for slaughtering families, Christian families, and every punishment we deserve was all taken on Jesus. This is the stuff, if we want the fear of God within our life, this is the stuff that we need to be telling ourselves daily, decision by by decision, moment by moment. Again, it was taken on by Jesus and the guy... It doesn't make a lick of sense, especially with the disciples who walked with Jesus. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. Saul walks in, and they're freaked out. For they did not believe he was the disciple. So they're still skeptical. The apostles are still suspicious, even after three years. You would think the disciples here have heard some good news about Saul, 
about the new changed man Saul that became, you know, so much time has passed, you just, just kind of assume that so is fear and suspicion. But this only goes to show you, I hope we realize this, how deep of a cut that Saul made in the early church. Saul made a deep cut. You can only maybe, I don't know, speculate that when he walked in and they made eye contact with him, the minute they saw the color of his eyes, the last time that they were around that or seen his eyes or looked into his face, he was ordering the execution of their very beloved dear friend Stephen. I mean, they don't like him at all. And the disciples' fear is challenging for us to understand possibly even for Saul to understand that there's one person in the room who gets it. One person. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Our old friend Barney gets it. Barnabas gets it. He acts as his sponsor and Barnabas is completely fearless. He wraps his arm around him and he says, no, 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 I vouch for him. Barnabas knows that Saul has been abandoned by his former friends. He is feared by all. He is rejected by all, including the disciples and including the one that he came there to see. We find out later that Saul came there to see Peter. He wanted to be friends. He wanted to learn from. He wanted to be with Peter and they reject him. They cower and are bothered by his presence. Verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. If you have an NIV Bible, I love it because it says that, Paul, that Saul was preaching fearlessly. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Ain't no rest for the wicked. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, his home land. In the last verse, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Essentially, there's like 46 sermons in that last verse alone. Peace and being built up and fear and comfort and spirit and multiplication. It's beautiful, these characteristics of the church. But I would say all of it, every single one of those ideas and truths of that community start and must start, will start, did start with the fear of God. All of those things. The Bible has this very famous line when it comes to fear, and many of you have probably heard it. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It also says in other areas, just as famous, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I don't know about you, but doesn't that strike you as strange? It doesn't say love is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't say grace or justice or goodness is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. No, no, no. It's like fear. It starts with fear. Fearing God. I was thinking if it was anything else, we can conform it. If it was love, yeah, love wins. We can conform it, yes. Love is the beginning. Love is where we start. Grace, easy, yes. God accepts all. But when one starts with fear, when one starts with fear, we want to know the truth about God produces fear. 
then life takes on from there. A proper understanding of God determines our life. And God says a proper understanding of him and his character, his action, his will, is to be feared. For Christians in this room, our concrete slab upon which all of our life is built has to be fear. How we dictate and how we decide and how we direct our paths, how we give, serve, love, invite, shake, rattle, roll, it's built upon fear. Now maybe, maybe by chance people are thinking, wait, I'm living the good life and I don't have your Jesus or your God. I'm living the good life. I don't need your Jesus or your God. And to that, I would remind you and say that the preacher in the beginning of our talk at one point believed the very same thing. You see, too many come to Jesus, too many come to Jesus and say, here is my life. Where does Jesus fit in? I'm living a good life. Where does Jesus fit into any of this? See, that's not godly fear. That's folly. That's foolishness. What the preacher, what I want to affirm tonight is that we need to step away from that mindset and understand that Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Here is my life. Here's where you fit in. Here's how my life transforms your life how I, the Lord, am not some peace in your life. I am the center. Friends, this is what we are called to do. This is what fear produces. Proverbs 19, epic scripture. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied, rest satisfied and he will not be visited by harm. Fear of the Lord leads to life. It's fear of God that like stokes the coals of our life, exposing those controlling factors in our life. Tonight, perhaps, some of those controlling factors have been exposed by this uncontrollable God. Perhaps the iron chains of sex, success, self-condemnation, self-righteousness, self-validation, or selfish pursuits is where your true, reverent, awe, respect, honor resides. Friends, this is not the good life. That is not the good life. Tonight, I would encourage you to pray for those things to be subdued. We don't bash them over and over again and just hate them more. But by expanding your understanding of who this God is. Correct and sober thoughts about God, about Jesus, will naturally lead to realistic thoughts about whatever it is you're facing. Whatever it is you're facing. So pray tonight for this to become fresh and new and real to you.